zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Mommy Dearest, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by Frankie Blands, Frank Perry, Tracy Hotchner, and Robert Getchell, based on a book by Christina Crawford, directed by Frank Perry, and released by Paramount Pictures. On May 10th, 1977, actress Joan Crawford passed away of a heart attack. Just over a year later, on October 2nd, 1978, the oldest of her adopted children, Christina Crawford, released an expose memoir entitled Mommy Dearest that told the story of her abusive upbringing at the hands of the Golden Age film star. It was the first of its kind to air a celebrity's dirty laundry so publicly, and the book and author were met with near-unanimous condemnation for allegedly slandering Joan Crawford. Hmm. I think that's interesting. Most critics claimed that Christina was simply seeking to profit from her mother's death, but despite the controversy, profits from sales amounted to around $700,000 for the author. Immediately upon its release, the book was optioned for $300,000 by Paramount Pictures, the only major studio Joan never worked with. An additional $250,000 was paid to author Christina Crawford to adapt the book into a screenplay herself. Paramount executive Frankie Blantz was attached to produce... Christina Crawford worked with screenwriter Robert Getchell on a first draft of the script, but it was tossed out. James Kirkwood was briefly brought on to write and quickly resigned. William Goldman turned in a draft, and at the time, Anne Bancroft was set to star with Franco Zeffirelli in the director's chair. That all sounds like a better combination. I think mm -hmm. so, too. Reportedly, Christina Crawford felt that Zeffirelli's angle was too complimentary of her mother, while at the same time, Bancroft was very disappointed with the critical nature of the portrayal, and after demanding a series of rewrites, stepped away from the role. Zeffirelli left with her, and Frank Perry was attached as director in his place. Faye Dunaway was then slotted into the lead role after showing up in costume at the home of producer Yablans. Oh, so she was crazy at the beginning. Yeah, she pulled Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout production, Dunaway's conflicts with nearly everyone on set have been widely publicized. She abused co-stars and crew, was often hours late for makeup calls, and conversations began at Paramount about letting her go. Ultimately, she was kept on because she so adeptly channeled Joan Crawford's look and character and had done extensive research into Crawford's life to prepare for the role. Was that why she was doing those things? Or was that just Faye no, Dunaway? No, she does that on every movie. Okay. She's so method. That she stayed she Joan Crawford for her she whole career. For her whole life, she's been preparing for this role. Yes. <laughs> She was also dressed and made up by costume designers and makeup artists who had worked with Crawford in the past. Dunaway was reportedly certain that she was in line for an Oscar for this performance, and her contract with Paramount required them to run a trade ad campaign for an acting nomination. Upon the film's release, audiences quickly decided for the studio that what they thought was a straight drama was in fact exploitation camp. Within a week, people were bringing their own Ajax and coat hangers to screenings and shouting things back at the screen like it was a new Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> Paramount worried that audiences weren't as familiar with Joan Crawford's filmography as they'd planned and rallied revival theaters and cable stations to run Crawford's work to coincide with the release. 
Christina Crawford has said of the finished product that she doesn't recognize anything of herself or her mother in the film. The film was rated R on its first pass, but in keeping with the recent pattern, the rating was appealed and dropped to PG without any cuts. The film was nominated for a then-record nine Razzies and won five, Worst Picture, Over Endless Love, Heaven's Gate, Lone Ranger, and Tarzan, Worst Actress for Dunaway, tied with Bo Derek for Tarzan the Ape Man, Worst Supporting for Steve Forrest as Greg Savitt for some reason. Hmm. I feel like he was that bad. He beat Billy Barty in Under the Rainbow. That doesn't hmm. seem fair. Diana Scarwood won for Supporting Actress, probably in response to her Oscar nomination the previous year for Inside Moves. Nominated in the same category were Ritanya Alda and Mara Hobel as Carol Ann and Young Christina in the same film. And Worst Screenplay. We open on an alarm clock blaring at 4 a.m. A gloved hand reaches out of a bed, and a woman wearing a face mask climbs out of the bed and moves to the bathroom. She collects a bowl of ice from under a counter and pours water over it, and then scrubs her hands and face strenuously in what looks like boiling water. She splashes the water across her face and then buries her head in a big handful of ice cubes. Next, she moves to a shower while we see tea being prepared downstairs. She walks straight out the front door toward the car of her waiting driver. As she rides in the car, she reads a bound copy of the script for MGM's Ice Follies of 1939. She also takes time to sign a few autographs in the car. They roll onto the MGM lot while it's still dark, and she is led to an empty soundstage where her makeup and costume are applied. The costume, in this case, includes ice skates. A man knocks at the door. Yes? We're ready for you, Miss Crawford. She turns around in her makeup chair, and we get our first look at Joan Crawford, as played by Faye Dunaway. We cut back to Joan's Beverly Hills home as one of those Star Tours buses rolls by outside, announcing Joan as the star of MGM's Ice Follies of 1939. It feels distinctly like a bus at a zoo pointing out enclosures as they pass by. Inside, we see Crawford on her hands and knees scrubbing the entry hall. Her assistant Carol Ann enters and announces the new housekeeper has finished cleaning the living room and they're ready for inspection. Fairly quickly, Joan notices that Helga didn't move the houseplants when she scrubbed the floors, so they still have dirt underneath. She expresses her disappointment, but assures the new housekeeper Helga that it isn't her fault. Helga, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the dirt. Apparently, Joan Crawford is attempting to reunite the staff of the defunct Paragon Institute from the Fury, because both Ritanya Alda, playing her assistant, and Alice Nunn, playing the housekeeper, served essentially the same roles in that organization. The doorbell rings, and it's Joan's boyfriend-slash-attorney-slash-agent, Greg Savitt. She tells him to take his shoes off because he's scuffing her freshly cleaned floors. What about the socks? I can handle the socks. I feel like she misreads this line, though, because the emphasis should have been on I, not handle. The way she says it, it sounds like she's just excusing wearing socks indoors. I can handle the socks. But I feel like she should have said, I can handle the socks. Like, I'll take those off. Oh, well, that's a different that's a different meaning. Yeah, but that's what happens because they go upstairs <laughs> and she's taking his socks off. <laughs> she leads him upstairs and we cut right to them showering together in the fanciest shower I've ever seen. We match cut from the shower steam to a fountain at St. Jude's Orphanage where Joan apparently volunteers annually to hand out Christmas presents to the children, coincidentally in front of cameras. One of the kids gives her a mischievous stare and they lock eyes for a moment. And we cut to Joan and Savitt walking on a beach. She tells him she wants a baby, and he tells her she's too vain for pregnancy, but she admits to a long string of miscarriages and that she has decided on adoption. 
Does he call her too vain or too old? Too vain. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because she's close to got to be close to forty in this time frame, right? Yeah, but that's not that old. Well, for the time, that was pretty old to have a baby. Yeah, but not too old, I would say. He informs her that as a twice-divorced single woman, no agency would ever approve her for adoption. She assures him that as a single parent, she could still manage to mother and father a child by herself. Maybe you could. One thing's certain, you'd sure get a lot of publicity. Bastard. You guys in Hollywood, all you think about is publicity, deals, box office. Why don't you try to understand the woman? We cut right to an adoption agency rejecting her application for all the reasons that Savitt predicted. You're a busy, active woman, and the candidate is found to be an unsuitable parent. Unsuitable? Thanks, Miss Crawford. Don't you dare judge me. We have a moral and legal responsibility in this job. Do you remember the last time we were rejected by an adoption agency? Thief? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Joan points out the amazing life that she could afford a child and accuses this woman of withholding the opportunity. We cut again to Joan's living room as a child is evidently already on the way to her house. These scenes average about five lines apiece so far, and we're cutting to a new location every 30 seconds. When a baby arrives, it's accompanied by a doctor and a representative of whatever agency Savitt bribed for her. In Christina Crawford's book, she mentions a younger brother she had briefly, whose mother showed up shortly after he was delivered to Joan, and the mother got her child back somehow. So it's possible these kids were borderline kidnapped and sold to her. What? Savitt follows Joan and her new daughter to the baby's room. You're a lucky little girl. And very expensive. It cost me a lot of favors. Joan takes the baby girl in her arms and wanders up the stairs. She names the baby Christina Darling before she even puts her down for the first time. But in Christina's book, she mentions that she wasn't legally adopted until months later, when she was almost a year old. And until that time, her name was actually Joan Crawford Jr. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And then at the last second, she was like, when they asked her what name she wanted, she was like, I don't like the name Joan Crawford Jr. Because she never even liked the name Joan Crawford. It was given to her by talent agents. Oh, really? We jump forward several years to a birthday party for Christina, and it's reminiscent of those thrown for Damien Thorne in the Omen series, or Billy Madison <laughs> yeah, as he was, completes each grade. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking Billy Madison. <laughs> There's pony rides, a carousel, a juggler. <laughs> like you thought that I was dead. <laughs> a man with a monkey wearing makeup, everything you could possibly want at your party. Joan and daughter Christina ride neighboring ponies and loudly proclaim their love for each other, but it rings false. It kind of reminds me of an anchorman when they're riding the animated ponies. I friggin' love you! I friggin' love you back! (laughs) There's a rainbow. Do me on it. (laughs) You're having a happy birthday, Christina Joan. I love you, Tina, There's also another baby who Joan introduces as her second child, Christopher. According to the book, the name Christopher was given to the boy whose mother took him back and then simply reused on this second boy. <laughs> Both of whom are really just reusing Christina's name. Joan wasn't a writer. <laughs> second Christopher's original name was Philip Jr. after his adoptive father, but when Joan's third marriage ended, she renamed the child. <laughs> She was just like, I'm taking your name off the baby I adopted. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Worth mentioning here that Joan also adopted a pair of twin girls who go completely unmentioned in the film. They were younger than these two. She cuddles Christopher for the camera, and the second he makes an uncomfortable sound, she hands him off for his nap and calls to Christina, who races ever-smiling from the carousel. A studio photographer reminds Joan that they'd like to snap photos of the gift unwrapping. Christina notices a grass stain on her dress, and Joan tells her not to worry until the photographer interrupts. I'll just run upstairs and have Nanny take care of it. Oh dear, we'll take the photographs now. Actually, Miss Crawford, it might read. Christina is quickly given permission to change, since a grass stain in this photo spread is evidently unacceptable. Christina pretends to unwrap things for pictures until she is dismissed to collect her friends and unwrap things for real. That afternoon, she opens one of her last gifts, and it's a baby doll. She says it's her favorite, and Joan reminds her that she only gets to keep one, and the rest will be donated to less fortunate kids. Savitt sneaks in, or Uncle Greg as she refers to him, and presents her with another last gift, a bejeweled bracelet. He knows of the agreement, and he offers to hold on to it for safekeeping, so she can keep a different toy. Joan reluctantly allows her to keep two gifts this year. All right. This time we'll make an exception. You may keep the doll and the bracelet. Oh, Mommy, dearest. <laughs> Joan reminds her daughter that adopted kids are the luckiest because they were chosen. The next day, Christina is doing diving practice in a pool while Joan coaches from the sidelines. Christina is tired, but her mother doesn't let up. She claims that it's to force her child to be better than everyone and never be mistaken for the product of nepotism. Joan complains to Savitt that she is desperate to play Mildred Pierce, but Louis B. Mayer thinks she can't handle the material. Joan, that's Mayer's business. I never tell a man I respect how to run his business. Savitt heads off to the office, and Joan jumps in the pool to embarrass her daughter in a series of relay races until Christina sounds on the verge of vomiting in the pool. Eventually, Joan admits that Christina will never win. Ah, but nobody ever said that life was fair, Tina. I'm bigger and I'm faster. I will always beat you. Then I'm not going to play with you anymore. Ever! Christina recalls this moment in her book as the beginning of her contentious relationship with her mother, her earliest memory of defiance. Joan screams Christina to her room, and when she refuses, she smacks the girl a few times and then closes her in a changing room for a timeout. Later, we see Joan in all sweats going for a jog along her lengthy driveway as Carol Ann drives beside her. Carol Ann is a truly loyal fan. The characters of Savitt and Carol Ann are actually composites of several boyfriends and assistants, but Joan Crawford actually did hire personal assistants out of her own fan clubs. She was known for a slavish devotion to her audience and corresponded with many of them until late in her life. Fans should know the price you pay. Mayor should know the price I pay. The biggest female star he's got ever had. And he's buried me alive. Joan races Carol Ann back up the driveway, and it sounds like she's pushing herself to the verge of tears with this workout. Inside, she gets a call. It's Mr. Savitt calling from Mr. Mayor's office. He breaks it to her quick that Mayor has agreed to cast her in Mildred Pierce, and he jokes there's nothing he could do to prevent it. Mayor thinks she'd be wonderful in the picture you wanted. What? What, Greg? He doesn't stay on the line to chat, and she explodes with excitement on her end of the line when the call ends. She's happy all the way upstairs and into her bedroom, where she intends to share the good news with Christina, but finds the girl imitating Joan thanking her friends, 
and all the excited energy is channeled into an insane fury. She feels mocked by the child, who's just repeating behavior she's seen. Christina seems to have misused some of her mother's beauty products, and when Joan can't brush them out of the girl's hair, she snatches up a pair of shears and just starts slashing away at the girl's locks, chopping them off all the way around as she sobs uncontrollably. If I were this child actress's parents, it would be impossible for me to watch them shoot this scene, not because hair matters at all, but because the girl seems genuinely terrified and Faye Dunaway is being so frantic with these scissors, I fully yeah. expected her to jab this girl in the neck or clip her ear off or something. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly a wig that they put on her. Right, because it's getting longer and shorter in different camera yeah. angles. Sometime later, Joan and Savitt pull up to a restaurant and on the way in, she hangs back to sign autographs and pose for pictures. When she gets inside, she is led across the dining room to her booth. Savitt has taken a seat at a table with Louis B. Mayer and Associates. They all say hello to Joan, and Mayer asks Joan to join them for a meal instead of returning to her table. She doesn't seem interested, but he strong-arms her into staying to impress his friends. Back at home that night, she blames Savitt for leading her to the table in the first place when all she wanted was a nice dinner alone with him. He reminds her that she abandoned him first on the way in, and if they'd entered at the same time, they could have had their own table, and Mayer would have had to stop by their booth to say hi. You expect me to ignore my fans. They're life and death to me, baby. Joan suspects aloud that Mayer is plotting to bring down her career, but Savitt says she went from playing the underdog to a heavy hitter, and audiences aren't behind her like they were. She's also getting older. She tells Savitt that he's just a fixer for the studios, sweeping every mess under the rug, and for some reason this pushes him over the edge, and he rushes to shake some sense into her. She realizes that she has apparently crossed a line, and tries to lure him to bed with apologies, but he dresses back up to leave. She tells him if he leaves now, there's no path back, and he promises to always speak well of her. Please. If you're acting, you're wasting your time. If you're not, you're wasting mine. I'm not acting. I'm not acting. Good night. Good luck. Goodbye. We get a montage of Joan and Carol Ann cutting Savitt's face out of all their family photos. In Joan's backyard later, a long table of women are mailing hundreds of autographed headshots to adoring fans, and Joan thanks them for the work. I, I hope they're not also signing them. No, I don't think on they are. Of her. It looks like she's she's pretty good about that, that she signs them all herself, but she needs help mailing them out. In the same backyard, we see Christina and Christopher rolling a round cushion back and forth through the grass and squealing with delight until they wake up Joan with their noise. Here I go! She was planning on sleeping in today because she has an important interview. Later, Christina brings Joan breakfast in bed with an apology and is sent back to her room. When Joan follows her to the room, she finds Christina lecturing her dolls for ruining Mommy's day. This afternoon, she has to see Mr. Mayor. Today is so important. You are selfish and thoughtless. You must learn to think about other people. You are bad. Bad children. Again, Joan doesn't see this as a simple reenactment, but blatant mockery, and she's not amused. That afternoon, Christina returns to her room after swimming and finds the dolls gone. When she reports it to her mother, Joan is quick to take credit for punishing her thoughtless, spoiled toys. The obvious message being that Christina and her brother can be just as easily disposed of if they continue to interrupt Mommy's rest. That afternoon, Joan heads to Mayer's office on the MGM lot. 
He has a lot of sweet talk at the start of their conversation, which should have worried her more, and he'll sort of contradict himself a bit later. On the way in, he says her films have never once disappointed him, financially. Then he reminds her that he's only given her good advice for their entire 18-year partnership. He has a favor to ask, and she's all too happy to oblige. You don't have to ask. You only have to tell me. Good. I want you to leave Metro. Leave Metro. When she demands an explanation, he admits that she's aging out of her pictures, and her last few projects have lost money. Theater owners voted you box office poison. Joan blames the scripts she's been stuck with, and he assures her that despite her bad press, other studios will be scrambling to pick her up. You may even get a hit. Will you be sorry then? I'm sorry now. She offers to clear out her bungalow, but Meyer admits that she is the last to know and it's already been taken care of. On the way out, she asks him to do the bare minimum of walking her to her car, but he asserts his dominance one last time by not even responding to the request. We hard cut to that night as Joan screams like a banshee, hurling a pair of shears at her rosebuds and clipping off their heads like the Queen of Hearts, all while repeating snippets of her chat with Mayer. Everyone already knows. Box office poison. <laughs> Box office poison. The children are quickly roused from bed to help their mother in the garden, presumably at her request, because if not, why bother them with this shit? <laughs> Christopher has to be unbuttoned from his bed. Yeah. Is that was that a thing or yeah. is that a thing? So uh, I I had to look it up because I was like is she so awful as to like tether these kids down to like hold them in bed but apparently he was a sleepwalker and this was her clever solution for trying to prevent him from sleepwalking. And it's a real product that they do offer to younger children but as he grew instead of expecting him to grow out of that habit yeah. they just kept she kept having them manufacture larger and larger ones for him. Wonderful. Uh, I don't think it's at all, you know, like something that he can't unfasten himself from when he wakes up because later in the film he gets out of bed on his own. So clearly he can remove this. It's it's really just there for when he's unconscious. And there there was about an hour cut out of this movie and I feel like there's no way that that wasn't explained at some point. (laughs) But he's not Moon Knight is the point. Right, right? exactly. (laughs) Well, sort of. This could be his origin story. No more crescent moons. (laughs) Joan asks the kids to clear all the branches she has chopped, and hopefully Carol Ann is starting to realize it was a mistake to bring them down here at all. Tina! Bring me the axe! She does it hesitantly, and Carol Ann looks horrified at what could easily happen here. Carol Ann never in this entire movie stands up for these children. I know. No. She doesn't care about the kids. She only cares about Joan. She doesn't even care about herself. It's crazy. Joan takes the axe to the base of an apple tree and chops it down. Christina Crawford has said that this also never happened. She never chopped down a tree in the middle of the night going crazy. Joan's face is streaked in blood, probably from cutting herself on thorns. The next day, Carol Ann is helping Joan run lines for Mildred Pierce. The Mildred character is, like Joan in the film version, a mother of two who considers herself to be a martyr, simply trying to provide a life for her children. At the climax of the scene, Mildred slaps her daughter Vita and immediately apologizes. It's pretty clear that Joan identifies directly with the character. Well, there's a little bit more to, to Mildred Pierce than that. <laughs> yeah, but that's the what they're trying to get across with these particular lines yeah. from the story. I'm sorry I did that. I'd have rather cut off my hand. 
Tucking Christina in that night, Carol Ann reveals the shameful truth that Joan is being forced into a screen test for the part as opposed to an outright offer, so it's important this process go perfectly. Christina offers to help however she can. We skip forward again to a random family dinner where Christina is refusing to eat a bloody steak, which Joan insists is just rare and good for her. The two are quickly ensnared in a standoff, and Christina is not excused from the table until she eats it. Hours later, Joan finds her there and tells her to put the meat in the fridge and go to bed. Christina is informed that Joan will be out for the night, and when she gets home, the plate will be totally cleared. When she checks in on the children that night, the meat is still on the plate, on Christina's nightstand. Joan exasperatedly takes the plate downstairs, and Christina finds it there again in the morning with her breakfast. Joan finally throws in the towel here, when Christina makes it clear that she is perfectly willing to skip a second consecutive meal in the name of her point. Joan doesn't see the irony of asking, Why must everything be a contest? As though she weren't a willing competitor in all their clashes. We cut to Oscar night, and crowds of press are staged in Joan's driveway. She has elected to stay home from this year's ceremony, blaming the flu, but is likely terrified to face a loss in person at this stage of her career. And the winner is... Joan Crawford! <laughs> Michael Curtiz accepts the award on her behalf, and the press outside start honking their horns to summon her out. She delivers a statement from the porch, and the press eat it up and clap her back to bed. Seemingly that night, Joan slips into Christina's closet to put some clothes in a hamper and finds a $300 dress hanging on a wire hanger. And if you know anything about this film, you know all hell is about to break loose. In fact, we're about to hear the clip that has ended the opening clip montage of every episode of this season of the podcast. Joan is already at full tilt ballistic by the time she wakes up Christina. No wire hangers! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? In the scene, Joan frantically lectures her daughter about hanging an expensive dress on a wire hanger, which is admittedly bad for the fabric, according to experts, but also unlikely Christina's fault, as she clearly isn't buying her own hangers. Yeah. I was like, what? I was like, you, who? She didn't hang this dress up on yeah, that. Yeah, it's above her head. Yeah. It's like practically eye level for Joan. It has been theorized, but isn't explicitly explained in the book, that Joan's distaste for wire hangers was a holdover from when her mother worked at a dry cleaner's when she was a child. Joan starts whipping every dress out of the closet into a big pile on the floor, insisting her daughter doesn't deserve them. When she encounters a second wire hanger in the closet, she corners Christina against her bed on the floor and thrashes her with the second hanger, which doesn't happen in the book, nor, by all accounts, did it ever happen in real life. This is like the part of the movie that everyone remembers, Yeah, and it didn't happen, and Christina is annoyed that it's in here. In the book, this is just a scene about a mother shouting her kids awake for an insane lecture on hangers. Christina's biggest gripe with the film was this change and the complete transformation of her mother into an unforgivable monster. But Joan still isn't finished. She takes issue with the state of the bathroom floor and repeatedly points to dirt that Christina claims not to see on the floor before beating her over the head with a full can of Ajax until it explodes. This part is in the book, and she mentions getting so much of it in her mouth that she was spitting it out all over for fear that she would be poisoned. Dunaway apparently screamed her voice hoarse shooting this scene, and reached out to her first deadly sin husband, Frank Sinatra, for advice at getting it back in shape. As she steps away, Joan demands Christina figure out a way to clean up this mess on her own, and when Christopher comes to her aid, she sends him back to bed, fearing further retribution for involving him. 
She stares at the dusty Ajax mess of a bathroom that she's been left in charge of. Jesus Christ. We hard cut to Christmas morning and a live radio broadcast with the Crawford family beside their own Christmas tree. So many of these scenes seem completely disconnected from each other and irrelevant, but um, they're basically just in here because they were in the book or some version of that scene was in the book. The host of the radio show encourages them to recite the final two lines of Twas the Night Before Christmas in unison and then says goodnight to his listeners. We cut from that to a man entering the house to see Joan and Christina offers to mix him a drink while he waits. He has to ask her to step it back when she pours something a bit strong. She refers to the man as her uncle, which is a nickname we've seen her use for her mother's paramours. Christina leads Uncle Ted right into her mother's bedroom and then sneaks back downstairs to fix her mother a drink. She returns to them with it and watches them kiss for a moment before they notice her. We hard cut to Christina being driven to a boarding school, seemingly as a direct response for the intrusion with Ted. The school is Chadwick Academy, and they meet Mrs. Chadwick herself outside when they arrive. After Joan leaves, Chadwick does her best to cheer the girl up, and we match cut to Diana Scarwood playing an older Christina, performing a scene from Antigone. When she finishes the scene, a boy in the front row teases her about her inevitable fame, and his girlfriend doesn't seem to appreciate it. Like, he's like, oh, what, you're going to be too busy to hang out with us? Yeah. And she's like, oh, stop it. And, it. and his girlfriend's like, yeah, stop it. Stop. Yeah, stop. We cut to Joan and Christina sitting in a booth at a fancy restaurant. They're handed menus that resemble the novelty-sized menus from Hardly Working earlier this season. Of course, Joan orders a rare steak for each of them, without consulting her daughter. After the waiter leaves, Joan accuses Christina of flirting with him and warns against it. Christina changes the subject by sharing her report card with her mother. Joan asks what progress she's made with her Christmas cards, but she hasn't started them yet, and they fight about it. Joan informs her that she fired the housekeeper Helga to save money, but while she says this, the camera focuses on her glittering jewelry. Back at home later, Christina is entrusted with all of Helga's work. Joan breaks it to Christina that she is having money problems and can't keep Christina at Chadwick Academy unless she takes a job there to help cover her tuition. She further confesses that Warner didn't renew her contract. Tina seems to sympathize mildly but clearly doesn't care and offers platitudes about surviving somehow and at least I love you. Late that night, Christina finds her mother passed out on a chair in her changing room and mistakes her unconsciousness for an emergency, but Carol Ann explains she's just drunk. Christina looks around the room and sees boxes and boxes of freshly opened clothing items. She told me we were broke. They walk her to her bed. Back at Chadwick Academy, Christina is working in the stables when the same boy, Tony, offers to take her for a horse ride that night. What about Vera? She's just a friend. That night we see them making out in a barn. According to the source material, Christina is 11 in this scene, having sex with a teenage boy. Wait, she's 11 in the scene or when this happened in real life when this happened in real life okay they're interrupted by vera who reports the infraction to the school who then put tony and christina on probation for their actions joan shows up to the school and demands tony's expulsion blaming him completely for what's happened which if christina was 11 probably isn't that far off like yeah that seems like yeah you should kick that kid out of the school joan pulls christina out of school completely and they head home as they park, Joan explains that there's a reporter here from Red Book doing a cover story on her. She demands Christina not contradict her in front of their guest for the sake of the article. The article, as the woman reads it to her, seems very complimentary at the moment. You're gonna love this. Movie star manages to have it all. Career, home, and family. Oh, let me see that. 
That sounds like the most boring article I've ever heard. <laughs> Somebody famous is doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's in Red Book. Money can buy happiness. Christina enters, and Joan is annoyed to have her in the same room with the reporter. She lies that Christina was just expelled from Chadwick and gets called out. That's a lie. Joan drags Christina to another room for the argument. When the argument turns violent and Joan starts slapping her daughter repeatedly, Barbara Bennett, the reporter, moves to intervene. Joan! <gasps> Barbara, please! Please, Barbara! Leave us alone, Barbara. If you need anything, ask Carol Ann. When Joan starts accusing Christina of deliberately embarrassing her in front of the press, a question occurs to her daughter. Why did you adopt me? And Joan is weirdly quick to admit the worst possible answer. Maybe I did it for a little extra publicity. Joan comes right out and asks the question she's been dancing around for Christina's whole life. I don't ask much from you, girl. Why can't you give me the respect that I'm entitled to? Why can't you treat me the way I would be treated by any stranger on the street? Because I am not one of your fans! This last comment officially pushes Joan off the cliff as she wraps her hands tightly around Christina's throat. They collapse to the floor together as Joan tries desperately to murder her own daughter. Right up until this scene, Diana Scarwood was allegedly worried that Crawford was being portrayed as too sympathetic, but after this she wasn't worried anymore. Dunaway was a bit out of control here, and when the fight is eventually broken up by Carol Ann, it was supposed to be broken up by Carol Ann and Barbara together. In multiple takes, Dunaway kicked Carol Ann actress Ratanya Alda in the chest, and Jocelyn Brando playing Barbara refused to put herself in real danger on set. She's like, I just got out of the hospital. I'm not going to get kicked. You can pull her off yourself. This scene of the movie was also allegedly saved until the very end in case these actresses injured each other for real. Oh, which seems like a shitty way to run your set that you can't count on the actresses not to hurt each other. Yeah. We hard cut to Christina being put in a convent to cleanse her of her sins. And then instantly cut right from this moment to the wedding of Joan Crawford and Alfred Steele, a member of Pepsi's board of directors. Bizarrely, we cut right back to the convent as Christina is being dismissed. It's impossible to get a handle on how time works in this universe. Yeah, they, they don't give you any kind of years. I looked up that they were uh, Joan married Alfred Steele in 1955. And they were only married for like four years. Yeah. Because so, he died in 59. Yeah, which is my favorite cut yeah. of this movie. <laughs> Well, and I, I was reading that apparently Faye Dunaway was refusing to wear any makeup that aged her throughout right. the process. And so as everyone else is aging, she is not. Yeah, so Ratanya <laughs> Alda looks older and older and yeah. older, and for some reason she looks the same towards the end. Yep. When Christina arrives home, she's instructed to address Mr. Steele as her father, since he is her stepfather. In real life, she got along very well with Steele until his mother mistook their friendliness for Christina trying to steal him away. We cut away to an apartment thick with construction workers. Joan speaks with an architect about the remodel of their future living space, and he complains about a weight-bearing wall. Joan insists money is no object, and Alfred Steele bites his tongue behind her. Joan asks Christina how her acting is going, and she reluctantly asks for a bit of cash to make it through the month. Predictably, Joan thinks that it will toughen her daughter up to find the money on her own, but her stepfather slips her some money as they part ways, demanding the gift be kept secret. Because he doesn't want to get beat with a wire hanger. <laughs> when they're finally alone together, Steele breaks it to Joan that even as a member of the Pepsi board of directors, they're moving beyond his financial means, but Joan won't hear it. 
She insists that Pepsi will make so much money with her as a spokesperson that the sky's the limit. Pepsi should be happy to pay for everything. But he explains that corporate America isn't like the movie business and all spending is very public. They have shareholders to answer to. I don't know if this changed since then, but I feel like they would have no problem just charging this all to Pepsi now. Well, but shareholders want the company to make profits. They're not going to be fine with somebody just spending it on their personal assets. Like, they would just call it something else. Just be like, oh, office improvements. Oh, great. Thanks, shareholders. She laughs off his worries and tells him that he'll find a way to pay for it. We hard cut to the Pepsi boardroom and Al is dead. <laughs> he died weeks ago. <laughs> He's like so happy. He was like, you know, like, ah, uh, you know, anything for you. I love you. It's like, yeah. I love you. Dead. Yeah. Joan is here because she was given a seat on the board as a token of their appreciation for her commitment to the company. The rest of the board first offer their condolences and then announce that they will give her ample time to repay her husband's debt. What debt? I've got 100,000 shares of stock. Your husband had to borrow against the stock to pay for the construction on your apartment. Pepsi quickly lays claim to the Fifth Avenue apartment, assuming she'd rather not stay there alone anyway. Joan assumes they're trying to swindle her out of what Al's widow deserves. She has no intention of leaving the board, and if she's forced out, she will make a very public scene. She threatens to turn against their product and undo whatever good she's done for them. Please, Miss Crawford, it's hardly necessary to make threats you surely don't mean. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. You forget the press I delivered to Pepsi was my power. I can use it any way I want. This ain't my first time at the rodeo. It's like this this reminded me of MacGyver was that's yesterday's newspaper. Yeah. It's like that's such a weird phrase. It's like this isn't my first rodeo or this ain't my yeah. first rodeo. It's like this ain't my first time at the rodeo. Yeah. I feel like in this room I might have been like, right, cool, do that then. <laughs> because she's been without a studio since before she married Al. Like Really, how much power does she have here? Pepsi apologizes and welcomes her to the board officially. Later, we see Joan step out of a taxi and surprise Christina in her apartment. She looks happy to see her mom for some reason. Christina tells her mom that she's up for a part on a soap opera, and Joan looks proud. Joan offers her a gift. It's a bejeweled necklace, the first one Al ever gave her. She makes her promise not to sell it for rent money if she doesn't get this soap opera gig. Christina is clearly moved. We cut to Joan's home, and she signs another stack of headshots for Carol Ann to mail out. They flip on the television so they won't miss Christina's part on the soap opera. Carol Ann thinks she's doing great, and Joan agrees. Evidently, they used the Happy Days set for the show in this film, and there's recognizable parts of the living room visible. The shows were recorded live in those days, and unfortunately, the video of these performances was not saved on any permanent tape. Fans often recorded episodes in audio formats, which is the only way that these shows exist anymore. We cut back to Christina's apartment where she sits alone eating dinner and starts reacting to terrible painful cramps. She collapses to the floor and crawls to the phone from which she calls her mother and we cut to the hospital. Joan relays word to Christina's employers at the soap opera that she will be okay. It was an ovarian tumor but completely benign, thank God. Thank God, it's a rotten break for her. Tell me this won't affect her job in any way, would it? Well, how long will she be here? Well, the doctor's not sure yet. Uh... We cut back to Christina's hospital room where a nurse turns on the television so she won't miss her soap opera. Christina is sure they'll do fine without her when the nurse gives her some surprising news. They just announced your mother is going to stand in for you until you're well. Oh. She can't. 
My character's only 28 years old. But sure enough, 60-year-old Joan Crawford stood in for her daughter on the show. In the clips we see of the episode, Joan stumbles over her lines, seemingly intoxicated and unfamiliar with the demands of a live performance. She keeps forgetting the lines, and her scene partner has to fill in the blanks for her. When they cut for a break, she blames cue cards for being too low. When they come back, Joan fares a little better, but Christina is still embarrassed in her bed and asks the nurse to turn it off. Sometime later, we see Christina wrapping glasses in bubble wrap to pack for a move. Carol Ann arrives with a dress that Joan picked out for Christina to wear to a special event. Carol Ann seems upset, and Christina asks what's wrong. She worries Joan will be very lonely when Christina moves. We cut to an unidentified award show, where a man presents their highest honor to Joan Crawford, who watches the show from bed at home. Christina is there to accept it on her behalf. Christina punctuates a fairly standard acceptance speech with her own personal congratulations to her mother and an expression of her love. Watching the show, Joan is moved to tears. We cut to a curtain as Christina pushes her way through dressed in all black. It seems clear her mother has died, and eventually the camera finds Joan Crawford lying in a coffin in front of her daughter. Christina has only kind things to say and appreciates that her adoptive mother is no longer in pain. Uh, well, see, I don't, I don't feel that she was saying those things about her mother. I feel like she was saying them to herself. It's, a, it's over now. There's no more pain. You don't have to be afraid. Like, oh, maybe. I think she's saying them about her. She's like relieved. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and that's that was my read of it. Yeah, that like makes sense. You, you can read it either way, but I think I feel like in her 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 state is like it's over. I don't know. She's just seemed so weirdly devoted to her the whole time, even when she was being awful. That I feel like she wouldn't even be able to say those things if she meant them in a mean way. Mm. She steps back out of the curtain and hugs her brother Christopher, who is waiting for her. Christina finds Carol Ann and gives her a big hug as well. She always loved you so very much. Christina, I need to believe that. I need so much to be able to believe that now. She did. We hard cut again to the reading of the will. This is the section pertaining to you and Christopher. It is my intention to make no provision herein for my son, Christopher, or my daughter, Christina, for reasons which are well known to them. What reasons? <laughs> Jesus Christ. As usual, she has the last word. Does she? The implication being that Christina's book and this consequent film represent the last word on their story. Although by all accounts, she was writing this book before Joan's passing, and thus before she learned of her disinheritance. We slow fade to black on Christina's face and credits roll the cheesiest possible ending line I for know. this entire yeah. movie. Yeah. It's actually possible that they were cut out of this will because her mom knew that she was writing a tell-all book about her. That That's what I was going to say just now. I was like, yeah. it was like, I bet she found out. Yeah. I'll cut out Christopher too. Why not? <laughs> Fuck him. 
but yeah uh that's mommy dearest it didn't deserve five razzie nominations i would say but it's not great it's Um, not faye dunaway's performance is really fun though i mean it's very over the top the problem with this movie though is it's entirely one note yeah it's it's aimless and one note it has no it has no arc whatsoever there is no like the daughter's the same at the beginning as she is at the end everybody's the same it's really just a series it's just a montage of moments uh that are all kind of the same yeah which is what the book was too and when you take out all the like violent stuff that that was added for the movie then it just sounds like a girl complaining about a mom who had anger issues which is like yeah okay lots of moms have anger issues like this isn't necessarily a movie i guess she was famous so she's worth writing about but aside from that like it's like what we said with coal miner's daughter where we're like how is this different from any other musicians rise and fall from grace (laughs) like it's like oh yeah she became really famous and then she had a lot of money that's the story yeah well i feel like so, like we said earlier that so many of the scenes are dis- disjointed yeah like it's like oh now she's here like like she goes into the convent cut away she's out of the convent it's yeah like, was she there for a year six months did she leave like, later that afternoon yeah it, it's like how how we have no real indication other than famous events like her winning an oscar that we can historically look at like yeah when did she get married when did she win this oscar and also the choice of diana scarwood as the older version of the girl when she was 11 when she had sex in the barn yeah it's like i would have believed the other girl was 11 before i would believe diana scarwood was 11 like that's a that's a weird choice unless the movie is taking liberties with the age and saying oh she was 20 when that happened yeah i think i think that that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing yeah although it wouldn't make sense then for her to be at a boarding school unless she's supposed to unless it goes all the way through high school yeah i don't i don't know i don't know anything about boarding schools that they can be of all sorts but I, I feel like so many of these moments, I'm like, I doubt she was as bad as this is representing. And I also doubt that Christina was as good as this movie is yeah, representing. Even so, Christina like, has said that she was not as bad as this movie is representing. Yeah. And so I just feel like they were they were trying to make something out of nothing. A little bit. And yeah. they failed. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, I still give it a thumbs up for the performances. Uh, specifically for Faye Dunaway's performance. I actually don't care for Diana Scarwood's performance in this. I really liked her in Inside Moves, but I feel like she doesn't have very much to do here. Um, like like you said, it's a one-note thing. It's yeah. just, oh, my mom yells at me, and then I make a scowl at her. And the, the only line that she really gets to sink her teeth into is the, I am not one of your fans. Like, that's the only line that she does anything with. Everything else is, is just exactly how it is on the page. Yeah. And then... Uh, but I, I actually do think the younger Christina did a really great job, but Faye Dunaway blows it out of the water. Every every scene, she's fascinating and fun to watch being crazy. Yeah. And I believe she was that crazy on set, too, but it's it's entertaining. I think that the stuff that I was reading on the side about Faye Dunaway and all right. this stuff was more interesting than the movie itself. Right, so. and I didn't touch on that, but why don't you explain a little bit about her own adoption situation? Well, yeah, so apparently she also adopted a child later in life, and uh, like it was, it, it almost mimics the story exactly. But with the the important difference being that she didn't admit that it was an adoption oh, until yeah. like 20-something years later. Yeah. Yeah. She just thought she just made everybody believe it was her own child. Right. That she was just somehow never pregnant with. Yeah. 
There you go. I'm I'm curious. I had never seen the series of feud. Feud. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, how much of this is represented in that series, if any, uh, because that seems like a much more well, much more interesting story because I feel like there's like more of an arc, right? Like there's like where whereas this movie, the I I couldn't tell you really what the plot of this movie is. The only episode that I've watched of uh, Feud uh, Betty and Joan was the Trog episode, <laughs> which I watched to prepare for our review of All that right. film. But that was her last film. Mm-hmm. So after that, she was like, you know, you wh- how am I going to improve on Trog? <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> But uh, I do remember in our Trog review that we mentioned that uh, she she refused to go to the premiere, but that uh, Christina went to the premiere for her and that her mom called her later and said, what did you think? And she was like, oh, it must have been a lot of fun to make. And she just hung up on her. <laughs> like that was, that was their conversation about Trog. Yeah, I don't think I would give this one a thumbs up because I, I wouldn't tell anybody to watch this. I don't sure. think there's anything worth watching it's kind of just a i i don't know it's just a there's a couple of moments that i guess are sort of interesting and that's about it yeah richard uh it's a thumbs down for me i the too much like the there's a lot of stuff that was kind of like hard to watch like if that's Definitely. the point of it yeah uh you know beating a child and 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 the stress that oh that part was fine a, the like you said the the young actress like i i don't know how you can keep a kid to hold it together but also act so incredibly frightened yeah unless they actually are horribly frightened of faye dunaway i would be uh so that's worrisome to me yeah. like on a way like it's like we're gonna traumatize this kid for the sake of the performance because it's hard to get little kids to act sometimes right Unless, Especially if Faye Dunaway has been like this on set the whole time. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's thumbs down. I that, that that kind of stuff was just too much for me. To yeah. And then enjoy. what about Letterboxd? Where you have this out of what are we at? One twenty-seven. Uh, so I have it at eighty-four, uh, which puts it below the nesting and above eye for an eye. Okay. I have it at ninety-two, and it's below sob but above under the rainbow. Okay. Um, I have it at 61, which is just under French Lieutenant's Woman and just above Prince of the City, which has another uh, exaggerated performance in it. Our director here was Frank Perry. Uh, He wrote and directed. He's best known for his collaborations with first wife Eleanor Perry on titles like David and Lisa, The Swimmer, and Diary of a Mad Housewife. When Perry was nominated for Best Director for David and Lisa, the Oscar was actually presented by Joan Crawford. The nominees for Best Achievement in Directing are Frank Perry for David and Lisa. So maybe this whole thing was revenge for her not saying his name that night. David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia. He was also nominated for a Razzie for his work on this film, and he is the uncle of singer Katy Perry. Writer Christina Crawford of the book, she is the adopted daughter of Joan Crawford. She later produced a documentary called Surviving Mommy Dearest. Her earliest credits are for her soap opera appearances on The Secret Storm, the show for which her mother played her part in four segments. Christina Crawford, who plays the part of Joan Kane, has been temporarily hospitalized. We are pleased to announce, however, that today and until she recovers, 
Christina will be replaced in the role by her mother, Miss Joan Crawford. If vindictive means I'm trying to vindicate myself, us, Nick, and yes, I am vindictive. All right, all right, so be it. Writer Frankie Blands, he was a Paramount executive who was awarded two Razzies for his work on this film, writing and producing. He has credits on Silver Streak, The Other Side of Midnight, and recent Patreon pick The Fury. Later, he produces The Star Chamber, Kid Co., Congo, and the series Rome. Another writer credit for Tracy Hotchner, who created the TV series Big Seamus, Little Seamus. Another writer credit for Robert Getchell, who wrote Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and created the series Alice. In the mid-90s, he wrote This Boy's Life and John Grisham adaptation The Client. The music here is from Henry Mancini, who wrote the Pink Panther theme, the Peter Gunn theme that kicked off the first season's music. Last season, he scored Little Miss Marker and A Change of Seasons, and earlier this season, he scored Backroads, SOB, and Condor Man. Cinematographer Paul Lohman also lit Meteor, Nashville, and Time After Time. We saw his work earlier this season in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, and before that in Hide in Plain Sight. He's back later this year for Looker. Editor Peter E. Berger his first editing credit was on Hot Potato, which was allegedly remade as Force 5. So far, we've seen his work in Last Married Couple in America, Oh God Book 2, and First Monday in October. Later, he cuts Star Trek 4, 5, Generations, Insurrection, Fatal Attraction, Hocus Pocus, Lawnmower Man 2, and the first Alvin and the Chipmunks movie. Faye Dunaway played Joan Crawford. Apparently, Dunaway was advised not to take this part by Myrna Loy after the backlash Christina faced for writing the book. Dunaway blames this film's failure for the subsequent floundering of her career and refuses to discuss it. She was Bonnie Parker in Bonnie and Clyde, Diana Christensen in Network, Evelyn Mulray in Chinatown, and we saw her last year as Frank Sinatra's bedridden wife in First Deadly Sin. Diana Scarwood played Christina Crawford. This part was evidently offered first to Mia Farrow, who passed. We saw her last season as Waitress Louise in Inside Moves, for which she picked up a Best Supporting Actress nomination. She was also Jody in What Lies Beneath, Maureen Coyle in Psycho 3, Mother Superior on Pushing Daisies, and Karen Tyler on Wonderfalls. Steve Forrest played Greg Savitt. He was Lieutenant Dan Hondo Harrelson on SWAT. He was the titular Baron of the 60s series The Baron. His character here is supposedly based on Hollywood attorney Greg Boutzer. Howard DeSilva played Louis B. Mayer, he was Ben Franklin in recent Patreon poll Loser, 1776. He's Eddie Harwood in The Blue Dahlia, Nat in The Long Weekend, and he actually worked for MGM with Crawford, and they appeared together in 1942's Reunion in France. Mara Hobel played the child version of Christina Crawford. Before this, she had a recurring role as Stephanie Aldrich on soap opera The Doctors. We saw her earlier this season as Michael Caine's daughter in The Hand. She also played Charlotte Tolden, next-door neighbor to the Connors in season five of Roseanne. Ratanya Alda played Carol Ann. She was Angela in Deer Hunter, Kristen in The Fury, and Dolores Montelli in Amityville 2. We saw her last season as Teresa in Christmas Evil. When doubling for Mia Farrow on the set of Rosemary's Baby, Alda actually met Joan Crawford, who was intended to appear in a cameo as herself in the film. Harry Gauze played Al Steele. Yeah. Very few credits, but the second one I always think of is a jewelry salesman in Marathon Man, with the first being Captain Hazel Hank Murphy from <laughs> Adult Swim's Sea Lab 2021, and his voice is unmistakable. What happened nice was... Nice try, doppelganger. What? We're not doppelgangers. Save it for Queen Doppelpopolis. <laughs> Michael Edwards played Ted Gelber. 
He shows up as old John Connor in deleted scenes from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Jocelyn Brando played Barbara Bennett, the reporter from Red Book. She is the older sister of Marlon Brando, and this was her final film. Priscilla Pointer played Mrs. Chadwick. She was Mrs. Snell in Carrie. I think that's the mother of the Amy Irving character. Yeah, Sue Snell. We've seen her so far in Honeysuckle Rose and The Competition, which both starred her daughter, Amy Irving, who we just saw in a Patreon pick for De Palma's The Fury. Gary Allen played Jimmy, the photographer, who said, It'll read, Miss Crawford. He was Mr. Newberry in Fright Night Part 2. Selma Archer played Connie. We had her last year as Mrs. Williams in Can't Stop the Music, and her husband is Army Archard, who we saw playing himself in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood last year. She was back earlier this season as a sales lady in Underground Aces. We mentioned previously that she is the woman dressed as Santa in the office Christmas party from Frank Cross's past in Scrooged. She was also Nurse Amy on 25 episodes of Melrose Place. Xander Berkeley played adult Christopher Crawford. This is his first credit. He's Connolly in Tag the Assassination Game, Bowery Snacks in Sid and Nancy, Todd Voigt in T2 Judgment Day, a bunch of voices on All Real Monsters, George Mason on 24, the stepdad of the Taken daughter in the Taken movies, and Gregory on The Walking Dead. Matthew Campion played actor in Soap. I think that's the one acting opposite Joan. Mm -hmm. He was Stromberg in Backroads earlier this season. Jerry Douglas played the radio interviewer in their house on Christmas morning. He was John Abbott in 945 episodes of The Young and the Restless. Margaret Fairchild played Mother Superior in The Orphanage. She was Mrs. Kerouac in Heartbeat and Claire in Inside Moves. Philip R. Allen played Pepsi Executive Number 1. He was Captain Esteban in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. James Kirk, speaking of speaking of The Search for Spock, yeah. James Kirk Wood <laughs> Jr. played Master of Ceremonies. He was Mickey Emerson in 1,025 episodes of Valiant Lady, whatever that is. Michael Hawkins played Pepsi Executive Number 2. We saw him last as Captain Jack Packerton in The Black Marble for a minisode, and he's back later this season as Senator Robert Harrison in Looker. Peter Jason played another Pepsi executive. We've seen him in Baltimore Bullet, The Long Riders, and Nice Dreams, and he's Master Boyd in Mortal Kombat, Gilbert in They Live, and a duty sergeant in Escape from L.A. Robert Harper played David. He's Charlie Gearson in the Creepshow Crate segment. Dawn Jeffrey played Vera. We saw her earlier this season as Caroline Chapman in Disney's Amy. She's also Mary Marvel from the 80s Shazam animated series. Virginia Kaiser played Beth Simpson. She was Virginia in All Night Long, and she's back next season as Mrs. Tuthill in Poltergeist. Nicholas Meal, or Melee, played assistant director number two. He was a photographer in Holy Moses and a shoplifter in All Night Long. Belita Moreno played Belinda Rosenberg. Her mother is actress Rita Moreno, but only on the sitcom George Lopez, and the two actresses are not related. Belita, Belita Moreno and Rita Moreno are not related. Warren Munson played a lawyer. He was Justice Beatrice Barstow in First Family, and we just had him last week as a second guard in Carbon Copy, presumably one of the guys keeping George Seagal out of his office after he's fired. Later, he plays Admiral Robertson in Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, and he also played Ambassadors on Young Indiana Jones, Executive Decision, and Star Trek Voyager. He was an ambassador on all three of those things. Yeah. Alice Nunn played Helga. I just saw her recently in Airport 1975, and then we had her in The Fury, but she's probably best known as Large Marge from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. David Price played Tony. We saw him last as Lily Tomlinson, Josh, in 9 to 5. 
He's back as Desmond in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. In the 90s, he directed Son of Darkness to Die For 2, Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde, and several episodes of Nightman. Michael Talbot played Driver. He was Freddy in Carrie, Hog in Big Wednesday, Mickey, who kills Jack Warden in Used Cars, and Busey's buddy Clay in Foolin' Around. We'll see him next in First Blood, and later he played Detective Sweetek in 110 Miami Vices. Or Switek? Sweetek? I don't know. I never watched that show. Arthur Taxier played Decorator. He was Dr. Fisher in Donnie Darko and a professor in Old School. Dick McGarvin played Tour Bus Driver. We've heard his voice as TV interviewers in The Incredible Shrinking Woman and Blowout. He has mostly interviewer and announcer credits, and later he is the voice of IBC in Scrooged. Eileen Woods played elderly audience member, and she's the voice of Cinderella in Disney's Cinderella. Yeah. I think that's everything for Mommy Dearest. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can check out the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Billy Pennington. As a $5 patron of the show, Billy now has access to 34 full-size 70s reviews, 40 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing a super different film called Only When I Laugh, which IMDb describes like so. A boozy Broadway actress comes out of a 12-week cure to face the problems of her best friends as well as her needy daughter. She tries to balance the terrors of returning to work with the demands of all around her with humor and insight while staying off the booze. Needy daughter? Needy daughter. What a judgy uh, review that is. I think this person was having a couple whiskeys while they wrote this. (laughs) We leave you now with a trailer, if there is one, for Only When I Laugh. She's a daughter who never had a childhood. I want to move in with you. You what? I want to move in with you. She's a mother who never grew up. I don't think I'm ready for you yet. I think it's a mistake. But if we're going to make it, let's start Friday night. For 16 years, they've been practically strangers. But when they get together, they're the most mismatched roommates since the goodbye girl. You are grounded, you hear me? And I don't mean for just a week or two. I mean until you're 36, 37 years of age. Columbia Pictures presents Neil Simon's Only when I laugh. I never forgave you for not putting up a fight for me. I'm sorry, baby. I just wasn't strong enough. I'm sorry for anybody who's ever tried to do something for you because you don't give a damn about them. You don't give a damn about me, and worst of all, you don't give a damn about yourself. Hey, you watch the way you talk to me. Then make me do something about it. You're a mother. Why don't you act like one? All right. It's about cooking together. Oh, good. I get to clean up the kitchen. No, just leave it open tonight. By tonight, you'll need hand grenades to clean this room. Now you know why Dad let me go. Shopping together. I think those two boys have been following us. They're 12 years old. Flirting together. I'm Polly Hines, and this is my sister. I'm a freshman. I'm a senior. Yeah. I thought you were the older one. Getting together. I know it's only been four minutes, but I think we're getting along beautifully. And coming apart. You asked me the other night how I really felt about you. I was so angry at you for never being around when I really needed something. Well, you're around now, aren't you? 
And it sure as hell is a disappointment to find out that I was better off when you were around, Holly. Marsha Mason and Christy McNichol in Neil Simon's Only When I Laugh. She still loves me. No matter what I seem to do, the kid still comes up loving me. It'll make you laugh till you cry. Are you worried? Only when I laugh. Hey, you. Want to get doomed? I'm Tessa. And I'm Nicole. And we have a spanking new podcast for your ear holes called Doom Generation. Listen in as two foul mouth biddies have an always casual, often comedic... What? I think we're funny. And sometimes chaotic conversation about the things that doomed us to be who we are today. Take a trip with us down Nostalgia Lane and we'll try not to veer off the road. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Doom Generation Pod and on Twitter at Doom Gen Pod. Later, Later Doomers! Doomers.